Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Once again, welcome. If some of you are visiting, you may not know that we have been in this book of Acts for a long time now, um, in part because as we were coming back out of, you know, all being on our own, we ended up feeling like we wanted to get back to the simplicity of what this early church meant, and yet the radical nature. Sometimes I have to admit to you guys, it doesn't feel so simple. In my heart, I wanted it to just theme like, look at the early church, radical inclusivity, radical generosity. Let's just get back to this simplicity. And then Facebook acts up, and we're scrambling to figure out how to get our Switcher app to work. And sometimes it doesn't feel simple. But we've been looking at the book of Acts because it's kind of beautiful in its gritty, radical rawness. And so last spring, we went into the first part of the book of Acts, and we started to look at the marks that were forming in this fellowship of believers in Jesus as the Christ, some marks of their life together that was naturally being produced because they were engaged with the very active presence of the Holy Spirit of God in their midst. We then went and spent some time in the summer going into a deep dive of prayer because, of course, the church has always been marked by people who are faithful in prayer and dependent on prayer to engage with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then these last few weeks, we've been in the second part of the book of Acts talking about what does it look like now to be the, the missio Dei, the mission of God? What does it look like now in our lives together? And we see some rough stuff happening. The church has to get through some disagreements, some persecution, some really strange moments. And remember last week, we've been with Paul now for a little while in this book, following his pathway, his voyages, and you remember how he just was trying to engage with the, the prophetic voice of the Holy Spirit and knew his call to go to Jerusalem, which then led him to Rome. He's been traveling, traveling. And last week, we looked into this moment where, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, John was here last week. Two weeks ago, we looked at this moment where suddenly Paul, who's been so faithful in his Jewish identity and now to call people to faith in Jesus, suddenly starts talking an awful lot about his Roman citizenship, which doesn't seem like something Paul often really is all that engaged with. And we talked about this moment where he was using the platform he had and do whatever it took to faithfully live out the call that Jesus had put on Paul's life, guided by the Spirit. And so to fast forward these last couple of chapters, what we read from that time where we last left Paul two weeks ago is that he has endured crazy uh, sea travel, a shipwreck, mess of a voyage, and then they land on this island. He gets bitten by a snake. Like, it's all a hot, dramatic mess for a couple chapters here. And we feel like the, the momentum of Paul's journey is, is speeding up, in a sense, in a really dramatic way. Finally, he gets to Rome in chapter 28, verse 11. And within 20 verses, the book ends. It just stops where you just heard Emily reading after we've been waiting for this moment literally for years in Paul's timeline. So remember our author here, Luke. 
Luke is the author of a gospel, one of the accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, and then also this book of Acts. And remember, Luke identifies himself as somebody who really likes to create an orderly account. He's a physician. He says in Luke 1.1, many people have set out to write accounts of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke is a precise writer and researcher of the truths of what's happening in and through Jesus Christ, but this does not feel very orderly or complete. It kind of feels like a cliffhanger. We finally just got to Rome. Whatever happened with that trial that he's been waiting in prison literally for years for this trial he asked for, what became of that? Elsewhere, he says he wanted to go to Spain. Did he ever go? Some accounts suggest that Paul most likely was martyred in Rome. Was that about to happen? Like, come on, Luke. What is the story? What ended up happening here? Could it be that Luke doesn't know? I doubt that. Luke is in the we, us, we packed and traveled. He's been here in this whole thing and he loves to do an orderly account. There are several theories about why this abrupt, seemingly abrupt ending may have happened, but I believe that this exactly as it stands is God's holy inspired word and I believe Luke is orderly in his account because he has been all through the gospel of Luke and all through the book of Acts. I believe this seemingly abrupt ending is intentional and absolutely respect, re, represents the completeness of what God and Luke intended us to know from this story. But why would that be? There's so many pieces of the story we didn't, didn't get to see what happened next. And I think it's very important because it's what we've been saying all along. Luke knows this story is not about Paul as dramatic as the last few chapters have been. It's about God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Luke doesn't want to glamorize the martyrdom of Paul. Actually, Luke is really intentional not to center Paul at all. This is the story of God, the message about Jesus going out through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happened here in these brief 20 verses? The Jews gather to hear from Paul now that he's in Rome. They disagree about his message of Jesus, just like every other time, nothing shocking yet. And when they disagree with one another, the word that's used is asymphony, which I probably said wrong, Scott. Don't call me out in public, though. Which means voices in disharmony. These voices are disharmonious. And Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah in the passage that Emily read for us and basically says, God said it through your ancestors as recorded in Isaiah. You are going to listen, but you won't understand. You're going to look, but you're not going to perceive. And your heart has grown dull. Ouch. He ends with very sharp words in this passage. A few things about this echo of prophecy by Paul. Now, I promised you guys in the beginning, and I, I sometimes give you the names of who we're leaning into because I want to make sure you guys know that we're not just hearing Melissa's weekly thoughts up here. And I've promised you guys that we will be learning from diverse voices because that's really important. Beverly Gaventa says, by contrast with the disharmonious voices of the Jews, Paul's introduction in his final statement emphasizes a kind of harmony. 
he assesses the Holy Spirit as speaking rightly when speaking through the prophet Isaiah, in this way signaling a unified voice, right? A harmonious voice of both the, the Holy Spirit, Isaiah, and now Paul himself. This is a beautiful harmony. What I think that Beverly Gavent is pointing out is that God through the prophets had spoken, through the spirits, and now again through believers uh, in Jesus now in Acts. And we see that this is a harmony of divine and human. This is a harmony of Old Testament and New Testament Holy Scriptures. There is a harmony that's going on when Paul leans on Old Testament prophecy and discerns that the Holy Spirit is sharing these words for the people of God again. And we knew that that kind of prophetic harmony was going to happen because in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit come upon everybody and they say when that happens, it's just like what they said through the prophet Joel. This moment was coming. That's an Old Testament prophet. Again, harmony of human and divine. Harmony of Old Testament and New Testament scripture. I love how Willie Jennings says this. He has sort of a poetic way about him. Harmony of voices, now through Paul, right? Jennings says this. Here God the lover joins Paul. And Paul speaks like an ancient prophet. Paul's final statement to his own is not one of hatred, but of a lover's anguish. And here's where we remember this love of God that has been burning for the people all through every bit of scripture, through all of time. This is not a moment, despite that sting of Paul's words, this is not a moment of uh, rejection or breakup, right? You hear that frustration, not as rejection, but instead like that divine desire to let known the faithfulness of God. Like, I long for you to not turn away throughout Old Testament prophecy. Again, that longing. God's faithfulness is witnessed through this relentless love that, yes, sometimes speaks with such frustration of a wayward people. Paul adds in verse 28, let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The church has messed this up in several times in history, what this verse means. And I think it's very important that we listen to this rightly. This is, the church has felt sometimes in this abrupt ending like that's it. That's the end. This is the moment when God finally said, I'm giving up on the Jews and I'm going to the Gentiles. That's it for you. And that would not work at all. You guys, that kind of messaging would be antithetical to the gospel of grace. And it's very important that we realize this. The love of God is available for everyone who ever turns to God whenever they turn throughout all of Old Testament prophecy. The fact is, is those words the prophets speak, they sting when they land because it's a harsh thing, but it's always out of love and a desire to call people back. All people, Jew and Gentile. By the way, those two categories mean every, every single human. That's an all-encompassing little combo package right there. Every, every human, a call to return. So I want to talk about Jewish heritage for a moment and the marriage, this harmony of Old Testament as New Testament as one continuous story of God. It's so important that throughout this book of Acts, we see that, that uh, Peter, James, Paul, nobody was promoting some new religion all throughout. This is a continuation of a story that has already been written by God. It's a continuation. 
Every time Paul goes to the synagogue, he tells the Jewish people their own story and how that story is continuing through God's grace because of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Messiah, Jesus, Son of God, and now is being witnessed in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God upon them, among them. And it's been promised through the Spirit who operated through Old Testament prophets. That was the spirit of prophecy on them to be the mouthpiece, just like Joel prof- uh, promised, that, that voice crying out again and again. So what's this story? Every time Paul goes, he leans in on story. He's not saying something new. So what's the story again? We have to remember that for some, this is a known story, but not for everyone. Here's the story. God calls up a people group and creates them by calling to Abraham and to Sarah, his wife, and saying, through you, I'm going to make a people, my people. Later, Jacob, one of the sons of Abraham, we have to go a couple generations, he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. God gives a people group an identity. He speaks it over them and hands it to them. I will be your God, you will be my people, and all nations will be blessed through you. But the nation of Israel in Old Testament scripture was called to be uh, a nation set apart as a people group. What were some of the things that marked this unique people group? Three things. Number one, they had a national identity, a very set people by birth, an ethnic identity that was to be kept pure. They had a national identity handed to them by Yahweh. Number two, they had a promised land. There was a geography attached to this national identification. In fact, we see in much of Old Testament scriptures, whenever that uh, promised place, that placement of where they were was broken and the Jewish people were forced into exile, there was great mourning and crying out for God and a longing to be reunited again. That, That breaking of promised land and geography was really, really important. And then third, and really richly, beautifully throughout all of the Old Testament, is a people marked by God's holy presence with them, among them. Now, it took various forms. When they were wandering in the wilderness, God was with them as a cloud of fire or a a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud in order to guide them or protect them. Uh, Later, when they were traveling, there there was a tabernacle that allowed a system of priests that allowed mediation and uh, between a holy God and an imperfect people and also a way to be made right again with God. But there, were, there was a tabernacle. There was an ark of the covenant that held the very presence of God. And it was finally taken into the holiest of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And God's presence was a huge indicator of the mark of this people group's national identity, that their God was present with them. With all of these marks of their identity, what we see is their set-apartness, which I think I made up, but it's a really important word because they were set apart for a purpose and their set-apartness marked them in a very important way. Now, I want us to consider set-apartness in our culture. Contrast this with, say, for example, celebrities now. Think of a celebrity you admire. Totally fine. We all have a celebrity we admire. Maybe we love their sense of fashion or they're an amazing athlete 
or they're a great actor, or we're just for some reason so enthralled with their royal story of what their life is like in a palace. Like, who is the one that in your mind is kind of set apart as like, you know, different than the rest of us? Because, I mean, they are. They're different, I imagine, in some ways than the rest of us. Their set apartness in our mind is so we can emulate and honor and glorify them their ability, their lifestyle, their whatever, accomplishments. That's their set-apartness. But for this people group, their set-apartness was for the glory, glorification of God. It's that people would sit there and look at them and rather than be like, whoa, they are so good at what they do, people would sit there and look at them and say, like, something different is going on with these people. They're feeding the poor. They are trying to seek justice for people whose voices are marginalized. They maybe wouldn't have used those words, but we do. And that's what was happening. These people were acting altogether different. And so rather than their set-apartness being so that they could be glorified, it was so that people would look at them and be like, who's their God? Because they're in a culture where people were, were marked by that. Like, who is this God that these people would follow and be set apart in this different way? They meet each other's needs. What's up? So this Yahweh God, this is our one God. And so we, therefore, as an extenuation of this story, are also called to be holy, or at least to reflect the holiness of God. And that includes the whole systems of the priests that we've talked about before, That because we fall short of that glory, and we needed a system, okay? And now Jesus has taken over that system. There's all of the Bible in a really quick little moment, kind of. Um, and God was the one who provided that way. So I love how Paul says it in the passage that we just read, and it may have gone by too quickly. In 2820, when Paul is addressing the Jews in Rome, he's finally made it to Rome, here's how he explains himself and his message. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted, and so I could explain to you that I'm bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. What Paul does in this phrase, the hope of Israel, he reminds people like this this is what we've been hoping for. This presence that's back with us. Whatever, whatever else you think. Remember, this is not a new thing I'm bringing in. This is a fulfillment. Our hope has come, you guys. It's a really big deal. What later becomes known as Christianity, it was not known as that at the time, it was the fulfillment of Israel's hope and purpose. Remember, there was a purpose attached to that identity. So that... I can bless all the nations through you. It's the fulfillment of Israel's hope and purpose. But look at this. With those marks we just talked about, Christianity has no holy land. We have no temple, no national borders, and no ethnic identity. And Acts shows us how this new Christian identity develops. We'll go back to 28, 30, and 31. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. Two years. You guys remember how we talked about this a few weeks ago? Acts kind of briefly says, like, then two years later, they were like, what are we going to do with him now? And you know, like two years just keeps passing like that. Two years. We didn't even have the first case of COVID yet known or reported to the World Health Organization. That's how long ago two years is. Two more years pass by in this verse. 
Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. I should have used a different version because the NLT does it that way. I actually prefer the NRSV says that, he, that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That more correctly matches the Greek word that ends because that's it. That's just like abrupt stop. That's all I'm going to tell you about that. We're not going to talk about the trial. We're not going to talk about martyrdom. We're going to end with this Greek word is unhinderedly, which is awkward, so we don't use it. But it just means the word goes out unhinderedly. And that's all that I have to say about that, because that's still true now. The gospel is proclaimed without hindrance. The word of God is unstoppable. It spreads and grows in power despite crisis in the church, which we've been seeing those stories throughout this second part of Acts. Despite opposition, we see that throughout history and through the book of Acts as well, Paul may still be chained. In the ending of the story, Paul's still like, I'm in chains, but this is the hope of Israel. And the word of God goes on unhinderedly. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.9, a letter that he has written um, to Timothy as Timothy is leading the early churches. He says, because I preach the good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. And that's why Luke is just ending here. It's like, well, the word of God just keeps going on unhinderedly. And it still is happening today. It is the landing point in Acts because this is God's plan, that this word would continue to go out and that it has always been God's plan. That's sort of the the leaning on this hope of Israel that Paul is talking about. This is the story now continuing through Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the presence of God in and through the people Because the Holy Spirit is still having this word go forth unhinderedly. The story can't be stopped. And it won't be stopped until God's mission will be fulfilled. That all nations will be blessed through you. So now I want us to look again in what now is called Christianity. And look at the continuation of the story of the marks of the identity of the people of Israel. And let's look at them with now. How do we redefine these marks? What's the national identity now? Jew and Gentile together. Again, another way of saying that is every single human ever, all part of the potential of this national identity. Where do we lean on here? Revelation 7, 9, in this future fulfillment when God's plan is fully glorified in our future. And Jesus returns. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. It will come to pass that every single tribe and tongue and nation will be included in God's national identity people. That's what happened to the national identity marker. What about the promised land? I actually think for this one, we should look back to the beginning. I just went to Revelation. I'm gonna go take us back to Genesis because where is the promised land? When man and woman were created, they were created together in God's image and a charge was put upon them together as men and women to be fruitful and multiply and care for this earth. Where is that promised land boundary? There is none. And that call is still upon us today as Christians. Fill the earth and govern it. That's not like a power thing. It's like take care of it. Take care of this earth. So our promised land is everywhere now, and we have a charge. Okay, how about holy temple, holy presence of God? And this is the part that we get to lean in a little bit most, I guess, today. 
Where is the very presence of God, that tabernacle, cloud of fire, ark of the covenant, holiest of holies? We look to 1 Corinthians 3.16, say, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you? You guys, this moment, this, this push at the end of Acts of unhinderedly moving forward with this message of God isn't a loss of identity. It's a God-sized expansion of it. And that's a really beautiful thing beyond, I think, what a lot of brains could have asked or imagined on how this plan was going to go. The fullness of intended human identity now through Christ takes those marks and blows them up beautifully. And this was always the plan. All nations will be blessed through this holy people, the nation of Israel. And that means that when we talk about today's portion of what it means to be the Missio Dei, the mission of God, it's talking about what it looks like that we were called to reflect God's very character, just as we were designed to bear God's image. The people of God would be the presence of God through the Holy Spirit working in and through them. So, Justo Gonzalez says, the book doesn't end because the acts of the Spirit don't end. I like that summary of why we come crashing to this place and don't get to hear the rest of Paul's story because it's not about Paul. This story isn't ending. It's still going on. And it's a continuation still today. So what does it mean to be God's mission? In two weeks, Sam is going to talk about the mission of God in an outward sense, which is very important and a huge part of our call as the people of God. But today we're talking about our, our identity as God's very mission as being the presence, the, the presence in the world. The good news about Jesus isn't just about personal salvation. For some of you, maybe you've heard that kind of phrase before. The good news is that Jesus saves, and that's really good news. And that's true news, and it's fantastic news, but it's not all of the news. The good news is about God reigning God reigning and inbreaking now, his presence, God's presence, excuse me, in the world now. That the world would be blessed by God through the people of God. That's part of the mission of God and the identity of the people who follow Jesus as Lord. This is the hope of Israel now fulfilled through Christ. The hope was to be marked as a people who are marked with the very presence of God. In 1 Peter 2.9, I want you to remember Peter is one of the ones who we followed earlier in this, in this book of Acts. He was one of the first ones who got up and just started preaching the good news uh, early on in the book. And we talked about the fact that like he was the really big figure and suddenly we just don't follow him anymore. Again, Luke's reminding us who's the main part of this story. It's about the spirit of God, God's movement through the spirit. But anyway, all the same, Peter says this, and I want you to remember that he is not looking at this as a new religion. He's not looking at this as a new faith. He is leaning in on his heritage as a Jewish man and saying this, you are not like that. You are a chosen people. It reminds me of that moment when like God chose Abraham to create a people group out of nothing. Now who's the chosen people? The people who follow Jesus. You are royal priests. What does that mean? That mediation between God, holy God and broken people with Christ as our high priest, we all serve as mediators of the presence of God now. That's a pretty big deal. You're chosen people, you're royal priests, you're a holy nation. We're a holy nation. 
God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So I think this concept of holiness is one that's kind of hard as the people of God, and there's a couple reasons. First of all, because we not only talk about holiness in church, we talk a lot about brokenness. Both those things are true. It's complicated, but it's absolutely true. What does it look like to live as holy people who acknowledge also our brokenness? Well, that's the Christian life, and it's the messy, glorious, holy, broken thing we get to do together as the church. I have a couple of uh, books that help in my mind, and I just give you these in case you're interested to look through them. But I would say this. These are books that talk about God's mission. Like, what does it actually mean? This is so chock full of all of Scripture explaining that God's presence with people now is the mission of God and what does it look like to live into it I think Ali I have a slide with some of the topics what kind of people are these mission people these are just some of his categories we're going to know the story that we're a part of we're going to care for creation and take that seriously by the way we're a blessing to the nation. We walk in God's ways. You guys can read the rest. But anybody talks through, like, how do, you, how do you live out this mission thing? What does that look like in a real everyday moment? And he gives a lot of great ideas on that. But he says this. Oh, by the way, he, his name is Christopher J.H. Wright. And he says this little moment. Okay, remember how I told you that a little prophetic word can sting a little bit? This one stung me. The world will see no reason to pay any attention to our claims about our invisible God if it sees no visible difference between the lives of those who make such claims and those who don't. So what does it look like to actually live as God's mission, as God's holy chosen people? Holy, set apart, and distinct. I'll get to this one in a minute. Anyway, this holiness thing does not mean purity culture. It doesn't mean perfection. It means taking this call of being God's people indwelt by the Holy Spirit really seriously. At its core, holiness isn't about being good or righteous. It's about being affected by the proximity of the divine. One of my professors, Nijay Gupta, said that. We get to experience the radiance of God's holiness because of Jesus. We're affected. We're naturally just affected by the proximity of the divine. You're in close proximity to the divine and you take on some of the attributes of holiness because we've been ransomed from our old ways, 1 Corinthians 6.18. What Paul expects of believers isn't that there's a new experience, but that they can just be free to express that which has already been created because of Christ Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that's where I would point out this book, uh, Kent Brower, Living as God's Holy People, Holiness and community in Paul. This one's way littler than the other one, you might notice. Um, but anyway, the, he just talks about, like, the, this doesn't feel like some huge task just handed to us. This is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit naturally outpouring and working in us to be the mission of God because the Holy Spirit is, is in it to win it to do this work as we just engage with this mission that we've been given. So I was thinking about this and I was like, this sounds like a lot of super churchy language to me. How do we even take this call to holiness or for being the mission of God, this very presence of God, how do, how do we get real with that? Like, what does that look like? I had a quick little trip to our cabin late this week and I was trying to think, like, this just all sounds like, like I said, church talk. And so um, Andy set me out on my mower, which is what he does when he knows I need to think of it and process through things. So I mowed 
for so long, you guys, on my little mower. It's a John Deere, I love it. It was a hand-me-down from my father-in-law. And as I mowed around, I was like, what does this look like? How can this become real? And I thought, you guys, I've seen so many examples of this in the last couple of weeks within this very community that we are a part of. What does this distant concept look like in real moments? I think of a couple who took candy to kids who were in the prime of their trick-or-treating years but are quarantined with COVID. And I think about the people who are like, you know what, I bet those little kids would love just a delivery of candy just to make them smile. In the last couple of weeks, it has looked like holding hands and crying on a couch and praying with somebody suffering enormous grief and loss and just letting the tears and the goobers flow and just being together. In the last couple of weeks, it's looked like somebody who's choosing forgiveness of a relative who has been very hurtful, both with what they have said and what they have failed to say. And she's choosing a really hard path of forgiveness, but is staying to it and choosing it. It's looked like little decisions to take care of the earth, to take care of this city, to take care of uh, just what it looks like to make wise decisions for sustainable living. I used to be accused by my sister of being a tree hugger because I own Burks. That was enough, Birkenstocks. That was enough for her to call me a tree hugger. You guys, I don't hug nearly enough trees. I'm convicted on that one. It looks like a couple of very specific examples I can think of people who are taking a lot of time to stand beside support and discern with very hurting marriages. That's hard work right now, but that's what this stuff looks like in real life. It means checking in on someone who is struggling with addiction and letting them know that their fight is worth it and that there's just words of grace and that they matter and they are seen by God. This is the really real stuff that this mission of God talk, this holy people talk, it looks like grittiness like that. It looks like showing up with a meal. It looks like letting your mascara run. It looks like your schedule being interrupted. It looks like presence in big and little moments. And so we turn and lean back on this hope of Israel and the presence of God. And I give you good news when it can feel like a whole lot. And this one came from this little book. It's the spirit who's active in producing holiness. This is not some talk about opening up to a passage of all the characteristics or attributes of a holy person and you figuring out a checklist to grow in them. This is about leaning into the Holy Spirit of God and saying, do your work. Let me be refined in community, in prayer, in scripture, in word, in worship. Let me be refined by you, Holy Spirit. Okay, I got off of my quote though. Okay, hold on. It's the spirit who's active in producing holiness. Holiness and holy living are not optional extras in the Christian life. They flow, they, they naturally flow from the love of God through the spirit. And that love of God includes all of creation. That's the blessing of all nations. That's the stewarding of all of this earth. Holy living is not some out there pedestal set apartness that is unattainable like, like our celebrities, right? Or they're not really unattainable, but anyway. It's not that kind of set-apartness. It's a kind of set-apartness, you guys, that draws people in and says, how, how do you, how are you holding joy? Why does your joy come easy? It doesn't always come easy, but I can tell you more about its source. How can you talk peacefully about that person that hurts you? I'm pursuing peace, and it's hard. I can tell you the gritty truth of it, because 
I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, but here's the story of what God's done in my life, right? All of this stuff, this is the stuff of holiness, and that's not a scary word. It's not an unattainable word, and we as holy broken people can be both together at once because of Christ Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Um, I confess that the call to holiness and the confession of brokenness feel like confusing messages to put together. And I just thank you for your grace. I thank you that you, um, you know us and you've entered in to our very messy world. And so nothing surprises you. And so I can hold, we can hold our brokenness and our longing for holiness through your Holy Spirit together before you all raw and gritty and just say, just show us where to go as your presence now. God, I think about people who um, just really need an encounter with God, maybe even here this morning, and they don't know it, they don't even have that language for it. Help us to be people who are responsive to your Holy Spirit and just trust enough to say that we want to do what it is that would bring glory to your name that our set-apartness would really be for your glory. So is there a place to use us today, God? We want to be responsive to that. Help us to think, not just this morning, but like throughout the weeks ahead, to just wake up and pray a prayer of responsiveness to you, Holy Spirit. Help us to grow in faith that you talk with us and that, that you do prompt us. If that feels foreign to help us, help us to just grow in faith and, and grow in expectancy. God, we want your name to be made much of. We want your inbreaking into the broken places that we see, into the, into the hurting lives of people who we care deeply for. And we're without words. Help us like, lean into that lack of words. Let us be okay with that. Help us not be solvers. Help us be presence, your presence. Help us to... Help us to just reflect you well in little spaces. And God, um, for those of us who uh, sometimes doubt that you could use us in big and little ways like that, I just, um, I pray an extra measure of favor and grace to wash over this space that we may receive more than our limited imaginations may have capacity for. That may, we may receive a hope beyond our own hope capacity an expectation beyond our own expectation capacity. Would you bring that kind of fire and desire into this, this place as we're gathered to make much of your holy name, King Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.